Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. One of the most loved and hated games in all of board games is the game of Monopoly. That there's just nothing like Monopoly to either give the family a good time or drive the family apart. (laughs) You know, so many times I've seen people in the middle of a game of Monopoly just quit, you know, just give up on it. It's just too frustrating. It's taking too long. And Monopoly is a you know, complicated, sometimes convoluted game. But one of the parts of Monopoly that always mystified me was the idea of jail. Because this was meant to represent some realistic aspects of life where you buy property, you build, you know, homes and hotels and you gain money and you become wealthy and, and, you know, defeat other people by, you know, pushing them out of the market, things like that. But going to jail in Monopoly wasn't the problem as much as it was the get-out-of-jail-free card. And I know there are circumstances in legal situations where if you know the right people, you can have some strings pulled, you can have charges dropped, things like that. But for the average everyday person, carrying a get-out-of-jail-free card just seems unrealistic. It kind of took some of the magic and and entertaining factors away from the game and my experience because it just doesn't reflect the reality of life as much as some of the other parts and then you're saying James this is a game what are you talking about what's the point that that is kind of the idea of what we have developed American Christianity into over the last century or so that salvation is no longer about relationship it's no longer about redemption and restoration it's only about getting away from punishment that if you have your get out of hell free card then when it's time to go to jail go to hell right you can just pull your card out and say boop here it is i don't have to go and so many people from my generation as i you know grew up in the church but also you know, i went to a public school i had friends that were not followers of jesus and even when i went to college in my undergrad years i saw so many people attached to this mentality that i gave my life to jesus at one point usually in my childhood or, or teenage years I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, maybe even got baptized. And so I'm a Christian, God loves me, I'm going to heaven when I die. That became such a focus of our faith. And we've talked about this in the past, so I I won't go too deep into this, but just as a quick reminder, man, the 1900s, because of what happened in our world, really caused people to turn their back on the hopes of this world being good, right? We had the you know, the Dep- 
Depression of the 1920s. We had two world wars. We had, you know, the, the conflict in Vietnam and then, of course, the Cold War with the fear of, you know, the Red Scare and, of course, the, the fear of nuclear annihilation, that everything was just on the, on the edge of collapse and destruction. So what did we do? We began to focus on heaven. We'd sing the great hymns like some great morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. All this focus was on going to heaven for a better life rather than working to bring heaven to earth like Jesus taught us to. And we've seen that as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this, that the idea of Jesus' teaching was not to get people into heaven. It was to restore the original purposes of why God made people in the first place. And we talked about this in, in some of the earlier episodes. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back in depth. But God's original purpose for creation of, of the heavens and the earth was to create family. In the heavens, God created heavenly beings to be the sons of God His uh, up, up in the heavenlies, right? And his spiritual beings, that would be his you know, family in the, in the spiritual realm. But he created earthly beings to be his family and to be his image here on the earth. And that's what God wanted. God didn't want robots. He wanted relationship. And so when we focus on salvation as a get-out-of-hell-free card, we are missing the overall essence of what God wanted from people in the first place. And so what we what we recognize, and I, and, and this is something that just kind of made it make sense for me, maybe it'll help you, that as a, as a teenager... Around the age of 16, 17, I finally got it through my head that my parents did not give me rules because they wanted to limit my life. They gave me rules and regulations within our home because they wanted to protect me, to give me my best life possible. And so that's what, you know, it was to keep me safe, it was to keep me protected, it was to teach me the right way to live and act and behave and, and to, to, to bring the kingdom in this world. That was the goal. And and so I used to look at the rules my parents gave me as limiters. It wasn't to hold me back from something. It was to get me into something. And what had happened in the the religious life of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry was exactly that. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these religious leaders that had the authority had limited everything in the Jewish life down to rules and regulations. If you want to be a good person, a good Jew, a good, you know, fo- you know, a good, you know, f- worshiper of Yahweh, you have to follow all these rules. And they got it twisted. The goal was to follow the rules to make God happy with you rather than following the rules because that's God's best for my life and that's what his heart is. And so we've said this numerous times that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's bringing a kingdom that would overturn the system. He's bringing a kingdom that would overturn the system. Jesus is trying to overturn the system of legalism and rule following just to be obedient to the rules rather than being obedient to God. He wants to get people back to the original intent That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the laws. He said, I came to fulfill them. He wants to bring us back to it. So as we pick up in Matthew chapter 7, we are coming into the end. We're coming to the close of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've walked through this, the Sermon on the Mount has three major sections, and we've covered two of them. The first was Jesus wanting people to recognize the goal of the kingdom. 
He wanted people to see they had gotten caught up in following the laws. He had this whole series of, you've heard it said, right, going back to the law of Moses. And he said, but I say to you. And he gives a clarification. He gives an explanation, a, a bringing it back to its original purpose. And then in the, the middle section that we just finished up, Jesus gets people back to a right heart. And we talked about how God cares so much more about our heart than our hands. That we don't do the things to get God's love. We have God's love, so we do the things. And we talked about that the heart intent is so much more important than the actual action. But then as Jesus closes this sermon, his manifesto of the kingdom, his yoke, what we would call a rabbi's teaching, right? His yoke for his ministry. The third part, the closing part of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on how do we live as a kingdom citizen. And this is really important that you see, just as members of my family's household followed those rules and, and, the, and the culture of my family's home, the same thing's true with my children in our home, that my wife and I have created a culture in our home of things we do and things we don't do. And the same thing's true in your home. That there are things that you have in your home's culture that may be different or unique or even similar, right? And the same thing's true of our American culture. We represent who we are by the way we act. And and so, for example, you know, as we look at as a soldier, you know, in the military, there are ways that I act and behave that show you the image of what it's like to be in the army. If you've never been in the army and you say, wow, I want to see what a soldier looks like, I hope I strive to be that image where you can say, wow, this is how a soldier cuts their hair. This is how they walk and talk and act. And, and this is when you see me in uniform, right? You, I'm hopefully wearing my uniform appropriately. I'm behaving the right way. I'm following the, the rules and regulations of the army. And so that you, when you see me, you would see what it's like to be part of that culture. And that's true of, of all kinds of, 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 even in American culture, we have things, but we also have subcultures within all of these things. And so, for example, just to kind of help us with this, the vegan subculture, right? Vegans have a lifestyle. They have a set of beliefs and a set of actions that follow those beliefs that show you they're a vegan. So they, they don't, you know, usually eat meat because the animals are not, you know, a living being and to, you know, kill that living being just to produce meat, they, they say, hey, that's, that's not uh, 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 appropriate. That's not the right thing to do. Uh, I had a friend in college who was vegan and he would go around places putting stickers on, you know, different, um, you know, walls or, you know, public spaces, which is, you know, vandalism and graffiti kind of a thing, but he did it. And the stickers would always say, meat's no treat to those you eat. Meat is no treat to those you eat, saying that it's maybe nice for you, but it's not nice for the animal you're killing. So let's imagine if you know somebody who says they're a vegan, but man, when you see them out and about, they're eating cheeseburgers. You know, they're, they're drinking milkshakes from cow's milk. They're wearing leather jackets, you know, made from cow skin. You would, you would say, you know what, that person says they're a vegan, but their lifestyle does not consistently match up with it. Now, the point of this is sometimes we all slip and fall. But in general, every one of us, if we're part of a culture, we follow those rules. I mean, like I said, there's always, you know, sin brings mistakes, and that's not an excuse to sin, and it's not an excuse of sin, but it is reality that we do 
choose our own way sometimes, and we need to repent and come back to God's way. But in general, followers of Jesus obey his commands. Jesus said that, right? If you love me, he told his disciples that. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Why? Because when we obey God's rules, we become part of his kingdom culture. If we are in the kingdom, we're expected to be part of that culture and live that lifestyle. So if I see a vegan eating a cheeseburger, or if I meet somebody that says they're a biker, right? Like a motorcycle biker, and they are part of the biker subculture, but they don't own a motorcycle and they never ride a motorcycle. And they just, maybe they wear the clothes and they talk the talk, but you're not really a biker if you don't have a bike, right? Or if I say, you know what, I'm a marathoner but I never run, then I'm not really a marathoner. Why? Because if you are that type of person, you do the actions that are associated with it. You see what I'm saying? And so this is what Jesus begins to hone in on toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got your Bible, let's pick up in Matthew chapter 7 as we have this is, is you know the, the last section before the last. And we're going to have two more sections in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at that together. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12. And we're going to cover a decent chunk today, so, so truck with me, okay? Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. That's a lot. Let's go back to the beginning of this section. This first part is super familiar. Even non-Christians, people who are not followers of Jesus, know this passage. You know, they probably know it in the King James, the do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? But what Jesus is saying is treat people the way you want to be treated. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And then Jesus makes this huge statement. He says the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets is this. This is the essence. He's saying this is the heart. That if you do this one thing, then the overflow will be to follow the others. Right? And so this is probably, perhaps, I think at least, the most important part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching about kingdom culture as he brings a kingdom that would overturn the system. And he says, people that are part of my kingdom, this is how they act. This is what he's getting at. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law of the Prophets. All these laws and regulations, right? 613 rules in the Law of Moses. Commandments that you have to follow. And many of them are civic, right? How you live in the, in the nation. Many of them are ceremonial and how you interact with God. But man, 
there are so many rules about how you interact as citizens, as people towards each other. And so, you know, when we talk about these 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 rules, right, of, of what you should do, you know, how you should treat your neighbor if you, you know, see their, you know, your neighbor's ox walking down the road, their donkey, then the law says you should walk it back to them. That's the right thing to do. That if you see, you know, your, your neighbor needs a loan in the Jewish culture, the law of Moses, you're not supposed to charge them interest. If you need security for the debt, you know, for example, if you were to, so to take it from a person that didn't have anything to pay you back, you could take their coat. And but you, according to the law of Moses, you should give that coat back at night so they could be warm when they slept, because that may be the only blanket they have is their coat. These are all ways we treat each other. And Jesus is saying, if you want to get to the heart of every law in the, in the in every rule and commandment in the law of Moses and all the writings of the prophets, it's treat people the way you want to be treated. Bless my children. They have heard me say that so many times. And I, whenever they have conflict, whenever they have problems in relationships, whenever they have you know moral dilemmas, I say, hey, how would you want to be treated? And they tell me, so, okay, that's what you should do. And so this is this is what now sometimes you can't, right? Sometimes there are social things that, that keep me from that. But in general, as I live my life, this is a great guide. How do I want to be treated if I'm in that situation? Okay, that's how I treat others. If I'm a boss and I supervise employees and they're doing something wrong, I could just fire them. I, could, I have that authority. But how would I want to be treated if I'm doing something wrong? I wouldn't want to be fired on the spot. I'd want to be told, this is what you're doing wrong, given a chance to fix it. And then even still, if I'm still struggling, give, give me tools to help me get better. Right? And so as a supervisor, that's how I treat my employees. As long as they don't you know, do something that's an a, a automatic, consequential fire based off our organization's rules, I try to give grace. Why? Because I want to receive grace. Uh, another great example of this, when I was in graduate school working on my Master's of Divinity, I messed up and did the wrong assignment and submitted the wrong book review in the wrong class. And the professor gave me a zero and he said, James, this is a great paper but it's not the right paper. It's not the right assignment. And so I took a day off work. I rushed home. I wrote the paper and I turned it in and I was hoping, I said, give something, right? 10 points, five points, anything is better than nothing. And I came back a couple of days later and checked my grades and I had a 100. And he had a note. He said, James, this is what grace looks like. Remember it when somebody else asks it of you. Why? Because we treat each other the way want to be treated. He didn't have to do that. As the professor, he had the authority to just give me, I had broken, the, I hadn't followed the rules. He had the right to give me a zero for that assignment. Jesus is telling his followers, your heart needs to be for people. And so your actions need to reflect it. Do to other people, right? Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is action. This is not just heart. This is not just me standing up and saying, I'm a vegan, I'm a biker, I'm a marathoner. I can say that all day long. My actions are what proves it. It's not either or, it's both and. It starts with the heart and it overflows to the hands. And so if we want to be followers of Jesus, we have to follow Jesus. And he tells us this. And then he gives this example. He says, you can only enter God's kingdom. Now this is, this is talking about being part of, of, of God's culture, part of his people. That you can only enter God's kingdom through the narrow gate. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. And he compares a narrow gate to a highway to hell, right? 
right? He says, the, you know, and then we've heard that song tons of times, that the Greek actually says the road that leads to destruction. And so he's saying that there's two different roads and two different gates. One road is a pathway to life. One road's a pathway to destruction. And he calls it a highway because it's wide. Think of an interstate. You know, I'll, every time I drive into Atlanta, I, I still, after all these years, I'm still surprised because it feels like every time I come, they add more lanes. <laughs> There's like six or eight lanes. I think in one place, uh, I feel like with the exit ramps and everything, it's up to 10 lanes. That's why there are numerous cars everywhere. It's a highway. But then when you drive out in the country where I live, there are dirt roads in my area. And they're so narrow, a, a, a regular vehicle can barely fit through it, much less two cars. And so when you sometimes when you, you know, one, you're going one direction, another car comes the other direction, you have to back up into somebody's driveway because the road's just too narrow. And some of these dirt roads if you, are great if you know where they are. They, they can get you to where you want to go. But if you don't know the roads, you're, you're, you're going to get lost and you're never going to find it. Why? Because they're hard to find. This is the, the mindset that Jesus is talking about. You see, when you would want to enter a, a, a city, there'd be numerous gates. I imagine in their mind, they're thinking of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had many gates, and they were the main entryways, but there were also special areas. And only certain people could get into them, and only certain people knew where they were. How to get, you know, what, what paths and, and, and roads do you have to take to get to that gate? This is the mindset of what Jesus is talking to them about, because these are people that are familiar with going into walled cities on a regular basis, whether it's Jerusalem or Jericho, right? All of these different places would be big cities. And then they entered into them, there would be a walled area for security. And so they would recognize there was the main way, and then there'd be a narrow way that very few people would find. Jesus is saying this about his kingdom. And this is kind of sad because God wants everybody to be in his kingdom. We see that in numerous places throughout the scripture. God wants all of his, you know, his creation, all of his humanity to be part of his family again. But Jesus tells us that the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. What's he saying? There are plenty of people that say one thing and do another. There are plenty of people that go their own way and follow the, the road to destruction and go through that narrow gate. It's easy to find. Why? Because it's easy to do that in life. Our selfish, sinful human nature makes it easy to do things our way. That's the easy choice. What do I want? Selfishness. What, what's my preference? What do I want out of this? But to think of others, to put the kingdom first, to, put, to treat others the way I want to be treated, that's difficult. And so Jesus is saying there is a road. There is a path that leads to life but it's difficult. And he wants people to understand it takes work. It takes effort. That's part of why Jesus taught in parables. Jesus taught in parables for two reasons, and he explains this to his disciples. First, he wants people to be able to comprehend difficult things. He says, you know, he's using earthly metaphors and symbols to represent heavenly concepts. It's hard to wrap your brain around a deep heavenly spiritual idea. That's why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he talked about being born again. That's a symbol of being part of God's kingdom, that, that salvation that happens. We become new people. But that was difficult for Nicodemus to wrap his brain around. And Jesus used a an earthly symbol, an earthly idea to connect to a heavenly concept and principle. And Jesus says the second thing, though, is that I, I teach in parables so people have to work to get to the truth. 
You have to put effort in. That's what's true of kingdom life. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes devotion. To be a disciple has the same root as discipline. It takes effort to be disciplined. One of my friends, Pastor Mark Brady, said it like this, that discipline has to pick up when motivation leaves off. The beginning of any project or idea is very easy in the beginning. The beginning of the year, everybody wants to go get in better physical shapes. The gyms are crowded. March, April, May, they're all empty again. Why? Because motivation has worn off and discipline didn't pick up. When I used to run marathons, it took discipline to follow the training plan. Even when my legs were sore, even when I was tired, even when it was cold or rainy, I still had to put the miles in to train. Why? Because I was disciplined. That's true of being a disciple. Same root, right? Disciple, discipline. It's this idea of being connected. I'm going to do what it takes even when it's hard. But then Jesus goes into this section. And this is one that we're going we're gonna to finish up with today is the tree and its fruit. And he says, it starts off by talking about false prophets. He says they're like, they, they look at like harmless sheep, but they're really vicious wolves. And he's talking about people that will come into the community to divide them. This was very common in the day of Jesus, that people would show up and they would say they were called from God to bring a message. Because being a prophet, man, that was honored. You got people would, would put you in the places of honor and meals. They would invite you to parties. They would you know, provide for you a lot of times as you traveled around. And so it was a, a very easy, comfortable lifestyle to simply say, I'm a prophet. I'm a teacher. But he says, beware of them who come. Just, they're false prophets. They come disguised as harmless sheep. On the outside, they look a certain way. But underneath, they're really something different. And Jesus says this, you can identify them by their fruit. You see, a fruit tree can only produce the fruit that it was made to. On the inside of the deepest levels of its DNA, it is designed to produce that type of fruit. Almond trees produce almonds, right? Yeah, I guess that's technically a, 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 you know, a nut, but, you know, orange trees produce oranges. Pear trees produce pears, right? Uh, fig trees produce figs. A tree is identified by its fruit. If you say, hey, what kind of tree is that? Oh, it's growing oranges. It's an orange tree. What type of tree is that? Oh, it's growing pears. It's a pear tree. You know a tree by the fruit it produces. And Jesus makes that connection. And he says a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. What does that mean? Well, without going too far down the rabbit trail, trees can develop root rot. They can develop sicknesses. And they can have this, these, these plant sicknesses and that, that get so deep into their system that it messes up the fruit. One of my friends, when I was growing up as a teenager, they had a, a, a farm that they had bought hundreds of acres of peach trees. And they were going to use this massive peach orchard, right? 300 plus acres of peaches. And they were going to, you know, they bought it so they could harvest the peaches. What they didn't know and what they had been tricked into was that as beautiful as the trees looked and as nice as the flowers were, the peaches grew on the tree rotten. From the time they came on the tree, started developing, you could actually look at them, they were black and and oozing and, and, and rotten. They were good for nothing. So what did we have to do? We had to bulldoze up and plow down every single one of those trees on those hundreds of acres put them in piles and burn them so the land could be used for something different. 
Why? Because they're worthless at that point. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And that's what Jesus says. Every tree, in verse 19, so every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. And this is a symbol of what happens in life. We can talk a good game. We can look good on the outside. But if our heart is not right, then we are headed for destruction eternally. And we're going to talk more about this in our next section. But you need to understand, you can't fake fruit. That's our big truth for this section. You cannot fake fruit. I can sell you an orange tree, and when you plant it in the ground and it starts producing pears, I tricked you. How do you know that? Why buy its fruit? A pear tree cannot produce oranges, an orange tree cannot produce pears. They are, it's, it, it's not how plant life works, and that's not how the Christian life works either. You and I can put on a good game. We can walk an aisle, we can say a prayer, we can show up at church every Sunday, we can say all the right Bible verses, we can look really good in public, but in our heart, our lifestyle the inside out has to match up. And so I want to ask you today as we wrap up this time, what is the fruit of your life showing you? Is it an overflow from a heart? I know in the past we talked about the heart. God cares more about your heart than your hands, but he does care about your hands. He cares about our actions. And so we have to ask ourselves, what kind of fruit are we producing? Does our lifestyle match up with what our lips say? Or am I being like the Pharisees who Jesus said fulfilled the writings of the prophet that they honor them with their lips, but their hearts are far from him? You see, if we want to enter the kingdom, it's a narrow gate. It's difficult. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes action. And so you and I, we can't fake fruit. When we look at our lives, what do we see? And I'll wrap up with this idea. My good friend, Chaplain Phil Waller, he's, he's an Army chaplain, but we, we did ministry together uh, in, as, as college students and as young adults. And he would say this very often. He would say, if you got arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? If you got arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence in your life that you would actually be convicted of being guilty of being a Christian? Is there enough evidence in your life for that conviction? And I want you and I to ask that of ourselves today. Does the evidence of my life, the fruit, match up with the root? If I say I'm connected to Jesus, what does that really mean? Am I doing Joe? Is it a false thing? Or is it real? Because you can't fake fruit. Be blessed this week. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.